Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent conversations we've had on JM in the AM. Everyone's concerned about the COVID vaccine. Dr. Alan Kadish, the president of Turo College, joined us to discuss the vaccine and a whole bunch of things going on at Turo. Dr. Alan Kadish, our guest on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. JM in the AM, as, I, uh, as I'm uh, set to introduce uh, Dr. Kalish, uh, it just reminded myself that I believe Rabbi Goldwasser is actually one of the uh, instructors and rabbis in the Turo College system. The Turo College and University system with with an incredible number of students is America's largest not-for-profit independent institution of higher and professional education under Jewish auspices. was founded in uh, 1971. And um, Dr. Alan Kadish, a prominent cardiologist, dedicated teacher, prolific researcher, and experienced administrator, is the president of the Turo College and University System. Dr. Kalish, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. One of the first people we spoke to when COVID-19 came to the United States was you, and that was many, many months ago. Before we talk about uh, COVID-19 and the vaccine, uh, tell me how the tens of thousands of students in the Turo College and University system have been adjusting to this new reality. It's been difficult for everyone, but overall, I think they're doing pretty well. We managed to convert 90% of education to remote education almost overnight around Purim time. Wow. And... Uh, there are, of course, clinical experiences and a few laboratories that and that have been in person in the spring. In the fall, we have a few classes that are also meeting in person under carefully controlled circumstances. Most of the students are learning remotely, and most of them have adapted very well. We've done surveys of the students, and the overwhelming majority feel like they've gotten a quality education remotely. That doesn't mean we're not anxious to get back to things as they were or almost as they were. But by and large, the students are doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. Everybody wants to get back to as close to normal as possible. One of the methods, one of the ways, one of the avenues to accomplish that is, of course, the vaccine. And uh, it's interesting that uh, when we speak to people in the world of politics, those who analyze the news of the day, uh, we pick up a lot of skepticism about the vaccine. Interestingly enough... When we've spoken to people in the medical field, we get very little other than enthusiasm for the vaccine. Where do you, Dr. Alan Kadish, fall on the enthusiastic level of the uh, current vaccine? I think uh, the vaccine has been uh, an amazing journey of science, medicine, and society. It's, I- I'm very much in favor of people receiving the vaccine. I think it's been both vaccines that are currently available in the United States have been extensively tested. Uh, There have been a few allergic reactions, a handful, uh, to one of the components of the vaccine. We think it's something called polyethylene glycol. Um, But um, overall, uh, the data on vaccine efficacy are about 95% with very, very rare significant side effects. And uh, it seems to protect people from getting coronavirus disease. And even the ones who get it seem to have mild cases. So I'm a strong proponent of getting the vaccine as soon as it's legally and reasonably possible. 
And I think uh, the skepticism uh, arises from two different areas. One um, is there's a group of people who are skeptical about, quote, foreign substances and vaccines in general. Uh, I think uh, those concerns we've talked about regarding measles and other things, I think those concerns are overblown. We always need to be careful about therapies that we administer or vaccines that we administer, and that's why they're extensively tested. Uh, but there's a group of people who just don't believe in vaccines in general, and then there's a group of people who object to certain policies of people involved in developing the vaccine, and so up till recently had had something invested in suggesting that there's something negative about the vaccines. I think the politics piece is going away. When you look at even people who said that they were concerned about it, once the vaccine's available, they seem to be taking it. Um, and I think the, you know, those who are generally opposed to vaccination for a variety of reasons, none of which I think are well-founded, but um, you know, some of those are well-meaning people. Um, I think, uh, I think uh, I'm hoping that resistance to the vaccine goes away because I think it's very, very important that we achieve herd immunity as soon as possible. Dr. Alan Kadish with us, president of Turo College. Can a regular person like myself understand the difference between the two vaccines that are out there right now? I, or I would need a medical degree just to simply understand the difference in the makeup and the ingredients, so to speak, of the vaccine. Uh, you know, I'm, it's not. I don't think necessarily that a medical degree would help. I think the vaccines are pretty similar. The two, one by uh, one by made by Pfizer and the other by Moderna, are very similar. They both um, use a very unusual mechanism to create a vaccine, or at least one that hasn't been used previously, which is that there's a little piece of genetic material that then the body uses to create proteins against which it creates antibodies. So it's, it's a creative way to produce a lot of immunity pretty quickly. Um, both of them target the same region of the virus, which is the protein that the virus uses to attach to cells and attack cells, something called the spike protein. Um, where, where they differ a little bit is they differ in the which part of that protein they attack. Um, the Pfizer one, which is a little better described, um, is a compilation of several antibodies. So it's not just one antibody, but it attacks several parts of the spike protein. Seems the Moderna vaccine works the same way. So I don't, uh, I don't think that there's much in the way of technical knowledge that distinguishes them. They attack. They're slightly different antibodies that attack that same protein. Uh, when people expressed shock at how fast this vaccine was developed, uh, somebody uh, on the air with us from the medical field said you don't realize that, that so much of what uh, has been developed over the last year was really researched and in a way developed over the last two decades. And people need to understand that type of ongoing research is, is in fact ongoing and that uh, you know eventually when you need that research, it's available. Uh, is that the way you would describe it? Do we go back years and years uh, to get to the source of where some of the very important aspects of this vaccine started to develop? Absolutely. Um, in order to develop the two vaccines that are currently available in the United States, although under limited availability, um, we had to understand how genetic material works. We had to understand how to manipulate it, how to build it, and then how this particular type of vaccine 
could then work to help the body produce antibodies. So there was a huge amount of work that went on. But I think the other point I would make about the rapid development of the vaccine is the tremendous extent of which resources that were plowed in, both as part of the U.S. government's initiative, Operation Warp Speed, and by private companies like Pfizer, billions and billions of dollars, tens of thousands of researchers working full-time to help address the COVID pandemic. And the combination of the knowledge acquired and the resources put in means that the vaccine could be developed quickly. And it's understanding that both of those things that should help diffuse some of the skepticism about how the fact that the vaccine was developed so quickly that maybe it was a rush job. Unbelievable knowledge, advances in science, and a tremendous extent of resources were put in to help build these vaccines. Dr. Alan Kadish is with us. I'm sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, that's good. President of Turo College, when you talk about the speed, and you know that Turo College has quite an imprint in Israel, I'm wondering what you think of the speed with which people are being inoculated there and how they may be the first country, I would guess, at this point that would really be able to declare themselves completely open down the road because of the speed that's going on over there. So it, it has been tremendous. Uh, the vaccine is uh, much more widely available in Israel than it is in the United States. And I think there are three reasons for that. Um, one is, of course, it's a smaller population. It makes it easier to address. Um, the second is that uh, in there are advantages and disadvantages to different kinds of healthcare systems. I don't want to get too deep into politics here. But for this particular um, application, which is getting the vaccine into people's hands as quickly as possible, um, the fact that they have a more centralized healthcare system with essentially four different coupot health maintenance organizations, insurers that take care of everybody, that makes it easier to distribute the vaccine. And finally, the Israeli government has done a great job negotiating uh, with companies that uh, have a good relationship with Israel for a variety of reasons in getting the vaccine into Israel. We talk about the herd immunity, and um, our our government officials are starting to, you know, hint to the fact that even with the vaccine becoming um, uh, more uh, more available, nonetheless, we're still going to have to adhere to certain restrictions over the next few months. I mean, at what point do you think the social distancing, mask wearing, all the things that, you know, that at the moment are, you know, such important parts of our lives, when do you think that we're going to move on from those? How many months will it take? So my best guess is uh, the fall of 21. Right. Um, And I say that for the following reasons. And uh, there are also some caveats to that. Um, it's taking a while to get the vaccine out there. Uh, People are talking about having adequate doses for the general population in in the spring or second quarter of 21. Um, And then to wait for everyone to get it and to get herd immunity, I think we're looking at the fall, assuming things go well. Uh, It's assuming that um, the, the allergic reactions remain minimal, and that there are no significant mutations of the vaccine of the virus that affect and alter the effectiveness of the vaccine. But I think if I had to pick a sort of average case scenario, it would be the fall of 21. Do we completely go back to normal at that point? I think it's a little too early to say that. 
but I think uh, when we've talked within the organization, for example, about when do we think we can have an indoor dinner, uh, my, our best guess is that we can do it in the fall. So a regular, normal campus experience, which, again, I would bet your thousands of students are craving, and, and so many students around the country in general are craving, it is possible in your estimation that when we get to Labor Day, we could be starting a very close to normal campus experience. So uh, the answer is yes, but with two qualifications. One is, as I said, I think there's still going to be some restrictions depending on where in herd immunity we are. But the second is there's a lot of talk about the potential for changes in higher education. Um, Students, I think, at least those that access to the right resources, and so I'm not talking about K through 12 where there have been some issues uh, in students having the right environment to study at home, but in in the higher education environment, um, I think people are more comfortable with remote learning than they thought they would be. Um, and uh, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is uh, we and other colleges have recognized, uh, and we've been doing this for years, um, that remote learning doesn't just mean you record a lecture and you play it for the students. There's a possibility of incorporating active learning, watching media pulling down information from the Internet in ways that can enhance the remote learning experience. So it's not just sitting and listening to a lecture, but there are discussion groups, there are chat rooms, there's access to Internet resources. When you design a course for remote learning, it's very different from just recording a lecture. Mm. Um, and so my sense is, certainly in our experience, that the student's reaction to remote learning has been better than expected. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have a huge number of people who want to be purely remote, but what we began even before COVID was a little bit of a hybrid model where some students, certainly not the majority or all of them, but some students, even who were in a traditional undergraduate college experience, found it useful to take one or two courses a semester online. And the reason is it's easy to schedule. It was easier for them to incorporate it in the rest of their day. And it created a little more variability in the environment. So they still had the social interaction of the college experience. They still had mentors in in in-person classes. But their schedule was perhaps a little bit easier because they incorporated some extent of hybrid learning. I'm not sure that higher education is going to go back to the way it was. In fact, most experts say it's not, um, because there are other things, there are advances that are being made in remote education, um, including personalized learning using artificial intelligence, where, for example, if there's a concept that comes easily to a student, you kind of sail through it, and if there's a a concept that's more difficult, the, the remote learning experience can actually focus the education on what that student needs. That's coming in the future regardless. So I don't think we go back exactly to the way we were. But the marketplace often dictates things like this. And I would seem, and I don't know if this is the case with Turo, but it seems to me that nationwide there are so many students that you really look forward to the, you know, college campus experience. And, and, uh, you know, and there's a, a specific value in that for them. 
uh, not just from an educational standpoint, but from a social standpoint. Um, it, do we need to see how the marketplace reacts to all this before you know completely overhauling a college experience? So uh, I, I would say, of course, the answer is yes. And no one ever knows how the marketplace is exactly going to react, except perhaps Jeff Bezos. But uh, but but um, predictions are that we're not going to be exactly the same. And I want to clarify, I'm not saying that people aren't going to go to a bricks-and-mortar college right. and aren't going to have a college experience. But what I am saying is that we may incorporate more remote experiences in that learning. For example, Harvard College for a while had students on campus in the dormitory rooms but had all their classes remote right? because they wanted students to have the social on-campus experience, even though, of course, it was mitigated by distance learning, and that model didn't last very long because of COVID. But the idea was we want the on-campus experience, but we can incorporate components of remote learning, and use it, particularly, as I said, using artificial intelligence. And that's what I see as the future, whether that happens in six months or a year or five years, it's not clear. And, and again, I'm not suggesting that college goes away or that on-campus experiences go away, but that just that they may look a little different. Based on what you're telling us, you must be sitting with your staff, remotely or not, right now, and, and thinking in you know many different directions. You know, if, if things happen in the following way in the first half of 20, 2021, we're going to you know, go in this direction. If things happen between now and the fall, a certain other way, we may go in that direction. You're really preparing, I would guess, for a lot of different eventualities. Yeah, it's been both exhilarating and kind of difficult. Yeah, frustrating. Uh, but but, but um, the important thing, I think we're at a time of disruption. And the important thing at a time of disruption is to be flexible and to be able to both be proactive and reactive. And that's what we're trying to do at Turo. And, you know, we have... We have um, different components to Turo, uh, the Jewish education learning component, the Smicha programs. We don't expect those to change in a significant way. Right. But the rest of the experiences, um, you know, even, as I said, even before COVID, so many of these things were happening. We were incorporating remote learning as part of bricks-and-mortar experiences. Medical schools, for example, we run five medical schools. Medical schools all over the country uh, are moving to much more interactive learning, going away from the sit-in-the-classroom lecture model. So there have been changes that have been going on in higher education. I think the COVID pandemic is going to accelerate those changes. Yeah, you mentioned medicine. Turo is a national leader in medical and healthcare education. Uh, doctors, pharmacists, physician assistants, occupational therapists, physical therapists, the categories go on and on, and it's in the thousands in each one. Um, with, with all that in mind, and we've heard about you know uh, the Fauci effect, do you anticipate that your medical and healthcare education is going to increase significantly in the next year or two? Well, there's two issues. Um, one is the number of students applying, and in medical school, that has skyrocketed. Wow. Uh, this year, our MD program, New York Medical College, has over 14,000 applicants for 210 spaces. Wow. Um, which is an increase of about 25% mm. or 30% over where we were last year. How long that will last, we don't know, but there's been a huge increase in applications. Um, as far as supply is concerned, predictions are still that we'll need more physicians in the United States. Um, there are a lot of resources required to educate physicians, so ramping up quickly 
is not an option. It has to be carefully planned, and we've got to make sure that we have the clinical experiences for students. So we're looking at expanding. Um, we expanded our class size in Henderson, Nevada, just outside of Vegas a couple of years ago, and we're looking at other expansions, but it's a carefully planned out process that takes years. So it's not that's not going to happen in a year or two. Right. I would think things are a little bit different than when you first entered the medical field. Things are a little bit different in this country. Also, some people tend to tell the next generation uh, some of the negative things that are associated with their industry. Would you highly recommend uh, to those young people that are looking in 2020 and 2021 to enter the medical field, you, would you highly recommend it to them? Uh, what I would say is that uh, you should go into health care if it's a passion. Mm. It's not easy. Particularly, uh, you know, we've seen tremendous stress on healthcare providers, not just physicians, but nurses on the front lines, PAs, EMTs. There have been tremendous stresses on healthcare providers um, in the last uh, year, and those have been building up over time. So it's great, it's a great service to be able to help people. Uh, you know, but there's tremendous Masiras Nefesh that's needed. There's tremendous dedication. Um, and, you know, some of the uh, other benefits of being a physician, which is possessing unique knowledge and uh, working independently and having a very high chance of economic success, those are diminishing with changes in medicine in the United States. Right. So my advice is go into healthcare if you love it. It's a, it's a tremendous profession, a tremendous way of helping people. Uh, but don't do it just because it's there. Have you heard because from... It's tough. Yeah, that's for sure. Have, have you heard from alumni who are now doctors and nurses about their experiences during COVID-19? Have you heard specific stories from those who you remember as students? Um, we've certainly heard a lot of stories, and we've heard a lot of stories from our current students. Um, and um, it's been stressful. There's no question it's been stressful. People are scared. Um, medical education and resident education was disrupted in a major way. And um, we tried to figure out how to balance education with the dangers of COVID. Um, and seeing people uh, previously healthy die, huge numbers of people in the ICU with little to do to help them, Right. has a psychological impact, uh, tremendously needed, tremendous overextended work hours because hospitals were swamped. It's been tough. I can imagine the type of, uh, of consultations, I want to be careful which word I use, consultations that doctors and nurses, especially the young ones, need just to be able to talk about their experiences and to understand that to a degree this is you know this is the industry right i mean you could attest to that this is this is the industry and this happens once in a while in terms of the volume and in terms of severity uh, but at the same time you don't want this, them to be scarred for life and you know in terms of staying in this profession so we're trying to do the best we can with psychological support uh but the other thing of course that we have to recognize is you mentioned it happens from time to time not really um we've never seen anything like this even during yeah. the height uh, of the AIDS epidemic, we never saw hospitals and ICUs swamped in this way. Right. Um, and you know, we there were there was a short period when we didn't understand how AIDS was transmitted, where things were pretty frightening. 
Um, there was a little bit of a different response that time, at that time, which was interesting. Um, you know, I trained during the start uh, of AIDS developing, um, and no one would even consider pulling medical students from clinical care because they were afraid of taking care of AIDS patients. Right. Um, we had a very different reaction at this point. Uh, students were immediately pulled. Things were a little bit different because hospitals were swamped and education was tough, and there were some places that lacked PPE. Uh, but it was an interesting uh, and, and difficult situation, figuring out how to get students trained and how to protect them, but also make them understand that uh, as a physician or a healthcare provider, you're, you have a huge obligation to your patients. What a time we're living in. The education system completely uh, <laughs> different than what we uh, had been used to. The medical system different than what we've been used to. And you're very involved in both. <laughs> and, and no doubt other areas of your life have been affected as well, uh, like all of us. Uh, but those are two main areas that have been so dominant uh, in terms of this whole COVID-19 episode. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. Thank God uh, those of us have, who survived have survived to this point, and now we just have to get to the point where uh, the country has herd immunity and we're able to get back to a normal existence, please, God. Yeah, I just close by saying we're at a time of great hope but also great danger. Yeah. Um, cases around the United States are at record highs. People are dying. Um, and the fact that the vaccine is becoming available, although it's going to be a few months before it's generally available, the fact that the vaccine is becoming available is all the more reason to redouble our efforts to be careful. Because if we were looking at an unlimited amount of time having to deal with COVID years and years and years, you can say, listen, I can't stop my life forever. But now we're talking about a few months. So my message is wear masks, stay isolated, be careful, because help's on the way. You don't have to live like this forever. Yeah, well said. Uh, Dr. Alan Kadish is president of Turo College and University System. Information about the, everything having to do with Turo at Turo.edu, Turo.edu. I thank you for your comments regarding the uh, vaccine. I hope that will allay some fears out there. And I thank you so much for joining us this morning on JM in the AM. My pleasure. Great to talk to you, as always. Dr. Alan Kadish, again, go to Turo.edu for information about all of this, especially if you do want to explore something in the medical field or any of the uh, areas of expertise when it comes to a Turo education. Tuesday morning broadcast, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSiegel.com and the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. That was my conversation with Dr. Alan Kadish. Next up, Dr. Joel Rosenshine and Steve Adelsberg together on the air to discuss Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, and a whole bunch of other things, frankly. Here's that conversation. JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, many of you may recall that um, we had a period of time uh, around World Series time where we were really serious about speaking about Jews and sports. Uh, it started with Steve Adelsberg, who'll join us in a minute, uh, when he was telling us some amazing Nick stories, uh, some incredible um, uh, 72 Olympic stories, with, remember, with Reggie Jackson, Ken Holtzman, etc. Uh, told us some great uh, baseball, basketball um, uh, tales that were related to our community. And then it drifted into this uh, amazing event that both he and uh, Ralph Rosenbaum sponsored when Ron Bloomberg was with us. We did a big Zoom event, had a great crowd and a wonderful conversation with the designated Hebrew. And all of this led Dr. Joel Rosenshine to contact me to let me know that he had an amazing baseball story for those who, um, who remember some of the greats 
in the world of the MLB. So I have two guests with us live via telephone. One, of course, is Steve Adelsberg, who is officially our our sports consultant. If he wasn't, we just made him our sports consultant now. Steve, good morning and welcome back to JM and the AM. Good morning, Nelson, and thank you for the title. Let yeah, me tell you something. It goes on the resume, top of the resume. We're, di- we're dishing out titles the way Kyrie Irving dishes out those assists, I'm telling you. Well, Assist this man could hit this man hits bank shots and he's and he's one guy when he hits that bank shot he doesn't have to call bank I'm yeah. telling you right now this yeah. ain't that good you know what's funny about his bank shot is that for all of us who practice that over and over and over and only you know could hit it even from short distance maybe fifty percent of the time it's amazing how he's perfected it just incredible um, so yes that's our shout out to Kyrie Irving who comes in the same neighborhood that I grew up in uh, and our second guest today is a legend in the Jewish community for a variety of reasons. And we know him a very, very long time. And he, some of you may find this hard to believe. He claims to have an amazing baseball tale that we promised to tell with Steve Adelsberg on the phone. And that's our wonderful friend, Dr. Joel Yosef Shimon Rosenshine, who's with us live via telephone. Dr. Rosenshine, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Rob to be on your radio show with City, I used to go, but I don't know. East Side, they don't let me in there. <laughs> yeah, we don't let anybody in right now. <laughs> but but maybe one day you will visit us here, please, God. And it's wonderful, God. wonderful to have you on the air. You, of course, have spoken to us over the years about so many important causes. But when we found out that you have a story to tell that's of significance uh, when it comes to our discussions on the air about old-time baseball and stories that are meaningful to our community, we said, you know what? we got to get Dr. Rosenshine on. Uh, to tell the story. So Steve Adelsberg's listening. I'm listening. Thousands of people are listening. Dr. Rosenshine, tell us, tell us, what is this story all about? So in 1937 or 48, I can't remember which year, I was in Yeshiva, but Friday, for some reason, we had off. I can't remember why. And there were two older guys. I wasn't even by mitzvah yet. Maybe I was just by mitzvah. And we found out that if you check the schedule of all the teams who were then only on trains, not on planes, they would come into Penn Station if we knew where they were the day before. So we would check the schedule from Detroit or from Chicago, and we would go to Penn Station, the teams. And we knew that they were going in a tunnel from Penn Station. Did we lose you, Dr. Rosenstein? Where are you? Yeah, the story's already amazing. <laughs> the story's already amazing. What happened to him? I can't believe this. Steve, we may need to turn to you to tell the rest of the story, even if you don't know it. You may just have to make it up. You may, you may have to make it up as you go along. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, once you heard him say that they're checking schedules to head to Penn Station to meet the players, you, you, already, you already knew this was a great story, right? You got it. You got it. Dr. Rosenshine. Yeah, uh, Dr. Rosenshine. Dr. Rosenshine. We lost you somewhere in Penn Station and we are gripped right. we are gripped by this tale. Please continue. So we would follow them from Penn Station to the New Yorker Hotel and we would get their signatures. So I met all the greats. Joe DiMaggio, Tommy Hedrick, Phil Keller, uh, Bill Dickey, and I think Phil Vizzuto too, and even Bob Feller. I was with Bob Feller in the elevator in the New Yorker Hotel. He had oh. one inside my book. Oh, my gosh. And there was a little lady there, Salvation Army uniform, and she says to Mr. Feller, what would this American boy think of us if you don't sign his book? And she 
Paris, Mr. Feller, and he signed the book. <gasps> so you had an yeah. you had an autograph book with you, and everyone you just mentioned signed it. That's correct. Oh Plus others, and I would get their pictures and put it in the book. Oh my God! Now, when I got married, I had some very from cousins through my wife, Rav Kalman Winter, all of Ashalab, Arav, and at the end in Washington D.C. And he borrowed my book, but he didn't realize that his mother had a habit of sometimes buying new furniture. And the book went out with one of those pieces of furniture. And that's why I oh talked God. to Nachem Siegel. Otherwise, I'd be a multimillionaire today selling that book with all those signatures. I, 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 I am devastated by the end of this story. I am devastated. That's, that's what happened with the book. So, I, so I'm not a multimillionaire, but you know, we have the Rebbeinu Shalalem. That's better than everything. But it was a great story, and I, I'll never forget the looks on these people when we would follow them. How do you know we were coming in? We just checked the schedule. It was so silk, though. There were these two older guys in my year, the Ellenberg brothers, and they were the ones who took me there. And it was so exciting to meet these men. You know, for a kid like me, it's 12, 13 years. And I was a Yankee. I lived in the Bronx. I was a big Yankee fan all the years. I mean, you met the Maggio. That's yeah, I showed the Maggio in person as a kid. That, by the way, for your generation, that that was probably the iconic figure in this country. If you were asked, then name the one person you want to meet. That would have been the answer. That's correct. That's correct. He used Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio was one person. Like one second. So one second. One second. Doctor Rosenstein, go ahead. What do you say? Say it again. He didn't have to catch the ball. He. Loaded up right. between left and right. Exactly. Right. Never watched it. He was a floater. He was so beautiful to watch. He never you ever remember. Had to run. He was just like floating in that outfield. I remember it like today. I could see him floating across the whole center field. If you remember, Nelson and Jack, the good doctor, 1947, when they playing the Dodgers in the World Series. Yep, I remember Maggio this. hits a ball to yep. left field where yep. Al Giafrandro yep. makes a great catch. Correct. And... And, and, like, it's, it's a picture of Joe DiMaggio rounding second. He makes the catch, and he kicks the, he kicks the stand up in the air. Yep. They all said, it's the only time they saw DiMaggio show emotion. Correct. So, I remember that. I remember that. That's great. I remember that film. Oh, my gosh. Uh, by the way, uh, Steve Adelsberg has people in his firm right now looking up what a book with both DiMaggio and Bob Feller's signature would be worth. Uh, Steve, Steve, have they gotten back to you yet? I'd like to torture Dr. Rosenstein more after well, that book. Well, I after that book one was thing mis- that I have. I have something comparable to that from my good friend, Sully Bemack. So B Mac is about the same age as you are, Doctor. I'm a little younger, a little younger. And he grows grows up in Brooklyn in the fifties. What they used to do, this is amazing, because this is a story that gives you a, a little bit of how the players were and how open it was, as the doctor just said. You just you saw him coming off the train. Right. So B Mac would go down to Ebbets Field. He would see the guard where they had the players' cars parked. Back then they all drive convertibles. What he would do, Sully Bamak would do, he would drop, the guard would let him into the parking lot, he would drop postcards, self-addressed postcards, <laughs> into the car. He would then, t- the guy would, the, 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 the uh, players would come out, he would tell which cards, and the players would take the time, sign the postcards, and mail it back. He, has, he, he was good, he had the good fortune of never lending me the book, so he still has it. Unbelievable. <laughs> He has Jackie, he has all the Dodgers, Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, Carl Perillo, Don Newcomb, Roy Campanella, all send back the postcards, 
signed on it. Unbelievable. Steve Adelsberg, Dr. Joel Rosenstein with us. By the way, whoever's speaking in the background in one of your locations, please ask them not to. <laughs> I, I'm gripped by these tales, and, I, and, and, and we, we, need to, we need to be able to speak uninterrupted. Dr. Rosenstein, am I wrong? I had, I had surmised. I, I thought Maybe I dreamt this. I thought you mentioned to me something about Babe Ruth. Was there any no. was there any encounter? Oh no, 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 no. Nope. Never met, never met the babe. But I want to make it very clear, Abnachem. This is a Torah okay. saddle, Torah station. You're known for your Torah. I'm so glad that I had the Helman Winter and his brother for relatives. It was much more important than all the baseball <laughs> in the world. That's what Steve, Steve, I want the message to get across. Steve, Steve, it sounds like Dr. Rosenstein has great grandchildren to marry off. Great great grandchildren, great and grand, both. Everybody brachas and everybody should be happy and good. And baseball was a good thing to watch for a little bit time. Don't forget it, guys. You're the best. I have to tell you, when it comes to Babe Ruth, one second, one second, Dr. Rosenstein, what? Say it again. I'm a Russian Baron Salvation's Talbot. I know. You were in the rub shear. I was in the rub shear for three years. And I bet you, and I bet you, at some point in those three years, the rub said something about baseball. There must have been some example. There must no, have been nothing. No, nothing. Be yes, anything. put that baseball away. He said, "Put that baseball away." He was cool, Tyra, and, and 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 the rub's greatness is not recognized by enough people. He was so much Tyra. He was a. So, Philosophically, a brilliant person. You just watch the word on Vayachi. I just read this Shabbos on Vayachi, where he talks about his days in Suslovich when he was a little kid in the middle of the night. Who's in, who's night. in the background over there? There's somebody who has to stop speaking. We can't hear Dr. Rosenstein. Go ahead, Doc. This last Vayachi of Yosheber reminds about he was an eight year old kid in Suslovich. Right. And it was after Hanukkah. Right. And it was dark, and they went with lanterns to the Rebbe. They had a Chabad Rebbe, which is another story. And they were depressed. And then the Rebbe says, What? Depressed? We just learned about the Father Yaakov is alive. What does it mean the Father Yaakov is alive, says Rabbi Yashabar? And the Rebbe said to them, Is your father alive? Then he turns to another kid, Your father's a blacksmith. But he's your father. He has been hugging. You have to follow everything from your father and your grandfathers. And that's the verse. Wow. I was trying to bring out eight-year-old kids in the dark of the night in Suslovich. Wow. Very nice. Very, very nice. Uh, Dr. Rosenstein and Steve, I want to make a recommendation to you based on what Dr. Rosenstein just said. And, and Dr. Rosenstein, I don't mean to, to intimate that you have a computer or a smartphone. After all, again, you have great-grandchildren to marry off. But if you have an opportunity, you must watch, you must watch the conversation that Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg had on video with Herschel Schechter, his Rebbe. Uh, I, I didn't watch it, but I heard about oh, it. Oh, you have to watch it. First of all, plenty about the Rav, obviously, and many other Gedolei Torah that Rav Schechter interacted with. But the covered, the tremendous respect that you will see a Talmud give his Rebbe, the same, I'm sure, that you had uh, for the Rav of Blessed Memory, it is simply unbelievable. So you have to watch it at some point. You will be inspired. I will watch it, but Rav Helsel Sechter was my Talmud, wow. believe it or not. He was my Talmud for Chumash 
in Rav Tenlashia, and I would teach Chumash every Tuesday. And Rav Herschel will uh, tell you that it's true that I did teach him Chumash, and he considered me one of his rebbies. So, wow. <laughs> Doctor, wow. does, does anyone here remember Rabbi Morris Chait? Of course. My father was Rabbi Morris. Rabbi Morris. Right. Now, Rabbi Morris Chait was a teacher, was a rebbe in MTA, Yeshiva University. Correct. I know. Now, okay. My father was very he was. My, my father's plaque, uh, the, after he passed away, we have a plaque for my father and mother in Rabbi Chait's Yeshiva in Eretz Israel. Mm-hmm. Right, so so the question becomes like this. He was a teacher at MTA, and he told us, very simply, he said, he has a baseball signed by Babe Ruth. Wow. So, wow. And, he was, and he was, when he was lifter, I would pay the ship a call. And I had one question for the son. <laughs> Which, who's getting the Babe Ruth baseball? Oh, wow. <laughs> they all perked up. They all smiled. They all laughed. <laughs> They said, they said, I have to tell you, a number of years ago, my father decided to sell it. We all thought we were going to buy a summer home somewhere. <laughs> we all thought it was going to be big, big, big. He said he could only get, at that time, $2,500 for it. Wow. That was it. So, you know. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I'll tell you. I'd love to know the story about how he got that baseball signed by me. The only thing I could say when you go back, if you all remember, you all remember, in the Lower East Side was the Biana Rebbe. Right. The Rebbe and two and Nukum Old Neighborhood, 247 East Broadway. Right. And his daughter was, you know, the Rebbeson, our Rebbeson in Sackett Lake. Uh, she was a beautiful lady. She was just, and she used to say that all the Rebbe's would come to her father because her father was neutral. He never had fights with anybody. So the Satmarov, Elder Novinskarov, they all came for meetings. They came to her house. And I said, that's unbelievable. And then she's telling me a story how her brothers took her to the Yankee Stadium. So I said, hold it, hold it, hold it. Are you going to tell me you saw Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Joe DiMaggio play? I go, yeah. And you sat with the Satma Rebbe? you got to be the most unique person in the world. You sat with all the Rebbe's, your father was a Rebbe, and you got the Yankee Stadium. I said, you got to tell this to my boys. Get them some inspiration. When I, write, when I try to tell my boys, we love sports, but remember... We don't do this for a living. Woo! <laughs> Boy. I say when it comes, and I, I appreciate you saying, Doctor, is that, you know, it's a means to an end, but it's not the end. By the way, Steve, I want to make you jealous. I am sitting, let me just figure this out for a second. I'm sitting about, about four-tenths of a mile from the Beyonder Stiebel right now. <laughs> That's the Vianna Stable, 247 East Broadway. You yeah. got it. Right. By the way, by the way, Dr. Rosenstein, the only neighborhood in the world where the Vianna Stable and the Mizrahi could be next door neighbors, right, Steve? The only neighborhood in the world. <laughs> Correct. Correct. This is true. There's a, tremendous, there's a tremendous story about the Vianna Rebbe yeah. and the Satra Rebbe. Yeah. It's a great, great story. In 1947, the Satma Rebbe comes for a bracha because he just came from Europe. He comes for a bracha, and he says to the Vienna Rebbe, everything's going to be like the Altaheim. I'm keeping everything. The way we dress, the way we talk Yiddish, the way we give our kids' names. We're keeping it. He says, of course, in Yiddish, we're keeping it the same, the Altaheim. The Vienna Rebbe says, I'm sorry. It can't be done. Remember, the Vienna Rebbe's been here since 1928. Right. His daughter had, his daughter had to see Babe Ruth. Right. So... <laughs> so 
This is twenty. This is twenty years before, and he says it can't be done. Rebbe said, the Sam Rebbe says, okay, give me a bracha. Gives him a bracha, and he goes. The Biana Rebbe calls his son Yisrael Friedman of Shalom, who just had his your site last week, and he says to Yisrael Friedman, he says to his son, give him an envelope, bring this to the Satmarov. His son looks at the envelope, and it's filled with two thousand dollars of cash in small bills. He says. He says to his father, I have two questions for you. First of all, yesterday, you were so against this idea of him. And then said today, and I got to ask you, where did you get $2,000 from? <laughs> we don't have that kind of money. And, he, and the Rebbe says like this, this is the beautiful part. He says, when I came in 1928, I also said, I want to keep everything like the Altaheim. I couldn't do it. You couldn't be done. I couldn't do it. But I knew one day. I'm going to meet somebody who can do it. Yesterday, I met the man. Wow. I've, been, I've been saving dollar bills every week for the last 20 years to be ready for that man. Now I am. Bring it to the Satmar Rebbe for his yeshivas. Wow. Wow. That was, that, that's Achtos. You should know that all the chasadim, RCCS, Rofacholim Cancer, the Hatzolop uh, things, all comes out of Satma. The greatest Hasadim are all from Satma. We're all benefiting from the whole Satma background and what they do for Yisrael. Amen. You're right. A hundred percent. But I gotta believe, I don't think the Satma Rebbe took went to Yankee Stadium where these kids do. You know, they didn't have that in the outside. <laughs> One of the things I remember I literally landed back in two thousand eight. I landed back um in the U.S. after my father's funeral in Israel, the phone ring. We daven shachers. We we were late because you know you know what the traffic's like on the Van Wick early in the morning. Um, so we were late, but we finally made shachers here at eight o'clock. And right after shachers, my phone rang, and it was uh, somebody who uh, was in the room um, years and years and years ago. Obviously, when my father had an encounter with the Satmarebbe and ended up being a shliach for him for something that had to be done in Israel. And I'll never forget, that was the very, with all the stories I heard, and boy did I hear a lot of stories, and Dr. Rosenstein was the last person, I know this is going to sound eerie, but Dr. Rosenstein was the last person to speak to my father during his lifetime. You remember that, Dr. Rosenstein, of course. Absolutely. We went downstairs after we had been on the program fundraising, and I asked him if I can give him a ride. And he said, no, no, I have my car. I'm visiting somebody in New Jersey. I said, well, have a great day. Unbelievable. And it was all over just a few minutes later. But uh, I remember that, that. That was Of all the stories I heard, the very first one was uh, was about uh, my father and the Satmar Rebbe. A lot of people know about his relationship with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, but this was Satmar. Anyway, I must get this conversation back on track. Dr. Rosenshine, I know, I know the whole thing about the great-grandchildren, but Steve and I have one question for you. Do you recall the first time you were ever at a Major League Baseball game? No, not really. I, I mean, I went regularly, but I don't remember. So where was it in Ebbets Field? Was it in Yankee Stadium? Where was oh, it? Oh, Yankee Stadium. I never went there. How, I mean, how, far, how, how far did you live from Yankee Stadium? Um, you could walk it on a Shabbos in about uh, 40 minutes. I was on Tremont and Southern Boulevard. And the rabbi there, the rabbi on Tremont Avenue was? Rabbi Chalap and Rabbi Peretzky, Aleyam HaSholom, Rabbi Chalap, wow. Rabbi Peretzky, Young Israel. My father was the treasurer of the Young Israel. Wow. And um, if you walk to the Grand Concourse from my house, was, I'd say, 15, 20 minutes, 
to get down to 163rd Street, probably another 20, 20, 30 minutes. Steve, you. Steve, you remember Ari Paretsky? Yeah, I remember Paretsky. Remember Ravi Chala? Yeah. That's the same one. You? Great Rabbanim. Great Rabbanim. Those were, those were our Rabbanim in the uh, east side. Ravi Chala actually married my parents. It was the Masada Kedush by my parents, both my sisters. And uh, Paretsky was at my... Uh, that was uh, part of my Masada Kedushin together with Rabbi Wilhelm Gorelick, my Rabbi Muvuk, and uh, some other... Abe Averick. You all know the name Abe Averick. He was under my chuppet, too. Yeah, that wasn't he YU basketball? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, but he was also a... I was involved with uh, a community. Community. I did Chazanim uh, placement for YU for a couple of years, so Abe Averick knew me very well. Um, you know the story with Rabbi Gorelick and the Aguda Convention, right? I'm not sure which one you're talking okay, about. Okay, so I will I will discuss that one with you off off the air, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> and when you say and just to clarify, because there are a lot of people from different generations listening. When you mean Rabbi Harlap, I assume you mean the Rabbi Harlap of our generation's father. Oh no no, Zulin's father. Right, Zulin's father. Right, yes, right, right, right. 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 <laughs> so I, may, I want to clarify because people are listening, and I want to make sure yeah, they yeah. they know. Zulin and I once came from a YU alumni uh, something weekend up in uh, maybe just the day I don't remember. We came. It was. 12 midnight, uh, we were driving home, and he says, let's stop in the yeshiva. I said, Abdul, and it's 12 midnight. No, I want to show you the 21 spara my father has ready to go to print. <gasps> wow. wow. And we came into the base medrash, 12 midnight, to a plenty of bachrim learning wow. in the base medrash at Hitzah Kolchana. And um, it, 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 people don't realize that Yitzhak Kolchana, till today, as a full base medrash, as boys learning all the time, maybe a little different than the yeshivish of uh, Borough Park and Flatbush and Lakewood, but the Torah is there, and the Torah is before everything else. Yeah, I, 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 I could tell you, because I'm very familiar with the next generation, because I have a lot of nephews in the Torah world, I could tell you how many of them are, are traveling up to Washington Heights from Lakewood and Borough Park occasionally to take oh, yeah. to take in the experience that you're talking about. Absolutely. There are a bunch you, of you, you brought back a memory, Dr. Rogers, because my Zeta used to always didn't say, I didn't go to YU, I went to Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Khun. Right. I never talk about why I talk about Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Khun, and my donations go to Rabbi Yitzhak al because that's the center of all that's good at Yeshiva University. It's, Rabbi Yitzhak al was the center, and it still is the center. And Rabbi Herschel Shechter's Al Gesundheit, everybody's eating OU. Whether they eat satma, whether they eat okay, the chemicals are all OU. OU is the kashrus place for everything. And people have to recognize it. Belsky Olav Shalom, together with Rav Shechtazogazanzain, are keeping all of the world. I don't know how this conversation keeps going off track, but I have one, I have one last question. Uh, Dr. Rosenstein, when's the most recent time? You were at a major league baseball game. <laughs> oh, come on, I'm only 21 years old. You think I stopped going? What are you talking about? <laughs> Have you been to a game in the last 10 years? I need to know. No, no. 20? 20? 30? Listen, I'm too busy going to see him, Hashasin. I can't be busy with baseball. You're too busy listening to JM and the AM on the NSN app. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I can't thank uh, you. Welcome. Anytime you have box seats for us to go together, I'll go with you, but you got to help me. You know, my walking is not as great as it used to be.
By the way, by the way, we're on the call with the right person because if we go with yes, if, we, if we go with Steve Adelsberg, not only can we get a baseball game, we'll have a delicious dinner as well. <laughs> okay, ready to go whenever you guys call me. I'm one second, to- one second. What was the kosher stand like in the 1940s in Yankee Stadium, Doctor Rosenstein? <laughs> what was the kosher? Well, kosher. Maybe there was some ice cream you can get, certainly some sodas. That's about Did it. Did your parents let you buy the Cracker Jack or not? <laughs> my parents didn't come with me. My parents were not in the stadium. I went with other people. <laughs> Dr. Rosenstein, thank you so much for joining us. Well, nice to meet you, Mr. Steven. Wow. Oh, yeah, so, thank you, Doctor. So, thank you so, so much. So Steve Adelsberg and Dr. Rosenstein, both of whom are drowning in work in Jewish organizations and the Jewish community, have never met before. You've never met Dr. Rosenstein. I never have. Interesting. I never have. I am glad. I am looking very much forward. Yeah. Like, see, when I'm going to see him, I'm going to go right over to him. Yeah, are you kidding me? He'll love the stories <laughs> that you have. I'll tell you that much. Um, I have to tell wow. you, it's great. These are, these are great stories. I mean, but I, today I will call my friend Sully Beamer. I mean, I'm going to show you Nachum, this album that he has of postcards. Yeah, I must, I must actually, see that. The, the, the players actually took the time. They left their cards opened that they could put a, 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 a postcard in them. And they mailed it back to him. I love it. it I love that it. was like you know that was, a, that was I always was always fascinated by the whole logistics of the event. It was just great. You know what's amazing? Uh, the autograph stories that end well, like the Bob Feller one, and the autograph yeah, yeah. and the autograph stories that end poorly. Both of them get so much attention. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, my, my late brother never got over Andy Bathgate. Not signing his autograph book on a Sunday night outside of Madison Square Garden. He never got over number, it to the point. Number nine. To the number point. Nine, Andy to the point that when my brother was dying, this is a hundred percent true. When my brother was dying, I tried to contact Andy Bathgate just to see if I could have him speak to him because I. I, I can you imagine that? That's what kind of obsession he had that Andy Bathgate never okay. signed that autograph no. book. <laughs> I, 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 rem- I remember Norm Sherry moving, renting a house in East Meadow as a kid, and he was playing for the Mets then. He, used, of course, was the old Dodger, and Norm Sherry was the one who gave Sandy Koufax the great advice of, hey, just, just slow down the fastball a little bit, get it over the plate. And this was 1959, and his brother, of course, was Larry Sherry. Both of them were Jewish. And Larry Sherry was the was the hero of the 1959 Los Angeles Dodger World Series, which they won the championship against the Chicago White Sox. That was only one, the only year between wow. fifty between forty seven and sixty two sixty four. The Yankees didn't win the pennant. They didn't win it that year, and then fifty nine, and they didn't win it, of course, in fifty four. Right. But that was like you know. But hey, you know, wow. uh, you know. So I remember knocking on Norm Sherry's door. And asking him for an autograph, I remember you talk about autographs. That's, I remember going to the '64 World Series. That's unbelievable. Sorry, the '64 World's Fair. We went to the World's right. Fair. Remember, right. and we had and the every day when the when the visiting team would come to Shea Stadium at the time, they would go they would go and visit the World's Fair. <laughs> and we were in we were in school the same day the Chicago Cubs and my friend still has Ernie Banks's autograph. Oh my gosh. Ernie, and the funny thing, and Ernie Banks, he first gave him a pen, and what you call it, and the pen didn't write, he just scribbled. So he gave me 
Ernie Banks is scribble. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you got the scribble, and he got the real autograph. You got to believe it. You got it. You know, of my life. <laughs> my my uh, my brother, who I just mentioned, was at Bunning's perfect game, Shea Stadium, 1964. I think it was Father's Day, 1964. Father's Day, Father's Day June 19th. I was in my backyard listening to it. In never, fact, no, it, have you ever been to a perfect game? I was just no I was just going to ask. I was never at a perfect game or no hitter. Were you? No, never was. That's unbelievable of all the games you've been to. Uh, and right. I, I remember he actually sold. He actually sold. Uh, this was before he got sick. I mean, he didn't, he didn't do it, you know. He just felt he didn't need it anymore. He sold the program that he kept, the scorecard that he kept Whoa. from that game. And, yeah, Bunning's perfect game. I'll, t- and he, I, I'll tell you, that, that, that to be at a no-hitter or a perfect game, it, people don't realize how rare it is. I know it happens a lot during the season, you know, whatever it is, five, yeah, ten times. It, it happens more now, but right. you know, growing it's, up was far oh. and few between. And there were some you know, the, there were some years, there were some streaks of years where it just never happened. Now it well, you remember, fun. I think it was sure we're talking about Babe Ruth today. I remember the story. Babe Ruth in 1918 is pitching for the Boston Red Sox. He, he, the first batter, he, he walks and he right. argues with the umpire. Right. And right. he gets thrown out of the game. Right. The relief pitcher comes in right. and he pitches a perfect game. And right. they throw out. The runner gets caught stealing, and the question always was, is that considered a perfect game? And, of course, it wasn't. Now, one second. That was caught stealing or a double play? You sure it was caught stealing? I, was I would go with caught stealing, but I wouldn't. I can't. I, I know that. I, I'm gonna, I can't. I'm going to have to get my staff on this, Steve. I'm going to have to get them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to get them researching. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I don't remember. Caught, I, I remember I the whole. I thought it was caught stealing. Yeah. I thought it was. was it, well, like, either way, either way. Yeah. They would have faced the minimum number of batters either way. Right, it was a double right, play or right. caught stealing. So, right, that was the that was the big Shyla. You know, they right. needed to really consider that, yeah. and uh, that was like the history there. I mean, like, uh, you know, he, yeah. but, but wow, <laughs> we've gone from we've gone from <laughs> Babe Ruth to the that was Be- a great interview. Yeah, that was a great we've interview. We've gone from Babe Ruth, like, you know, we've gone from Babe Ruth to the Bianca Rib. Only only on JFK. By the way, everybody, by the way, everybody, on the topic of only on JM and the AM, that's right. Babe Ruth to the Beyond Reb. It's the only place you're going to hear conversations like this. Keep us in mind. Tomorrow's the last day of the year. If you've waited till now to give a a, a final end-of-year donation, go to fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org. And for those of you who can't stand when I do sports conversations on the air, I hope you weren't listening for the last half hour. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> simple as that. Simple as that. Uh, anyway, Steve, I thank you. Thank, uh, we'll have to plan the next one. The next one that I have, there's yeah. there's somebody who is very involved in telling baseball stories who wrote an incredible story that I about, about Jews and baseball that I was shocked I didn't know about, and I'm going to bring you on when I get this guy on to see if you've heard of this one. So prepare yourself. Okay. Prepare yourself, my friend. Well, as I say, right now I'm gonna, I can't get my hat on, and my head is swelled because <laughs> I'm now the sports consultant of JM and the AM. I got to tell you, no, let, I can't, you can't get better. Let I'm me going just... to work today. I'm, I'm resigning as my partner in my firm. I'm not doing anything. I'm a sports consultant. That's, that's my top of my resume. Let me just check with my control room. Uh, is it sports consultant in there? Uh it seems, yeah, it seems sports consultant is the right title. Yes, okay, sports consultant for JMDM. I was thinking actually of bumping you up to an even more prestigious title, but we'll we'll keep you at this level for a while. <laughs> Very good. And by the way, I'm four-tenths of a mile away for the Beyonder Schneeble, just letting you know. 
Oh, oh God. Next time I pass by. I'll... Yeah, right. Do you even know if they've been able to maintain a minion during COVID? Do you have any idea? Uh, for, uh, let's put it this way. I usually have the visitor. They usually come down to me, and we talk about ways of getting a minion, as you can imagine. So, they, so there hasn't been. Probably not. Wow. When uh, Emotions wow. and Firestein was Lifter, that was one of the um, he was one of the stores of that minion. Wow. It's the same, right? Unbelievable. Thank you, Steve Adelsberg. All the best. Only good things to you and your listening audience. You just be safe. We should just feel good. And remember, people, in this COVID right now, we're on third base. Rounding's coming home. I hope you never want to get thrown out of home plate. I hope. I hope that's been, that's been my policy. I don't want to mess this up now because we're right, so we're right. so close to the end. But I hope we don't get we don't get thrown out of home plate. <laughs> I hope you're right, right about that. Let's hope it's over very soon. A uh, big thank you to Steve Adelsberg. Um, if you love free flowing, free form conversations about sports and Judaism, and you came in in the middle of this, make sure to go later today to the archives at NahumSiegel.com or the NSN app. If you can't stand these conversations, make believe it never happened. That was my conversation with Dr. Joel Rosenstein and Steve Adelsberg. Thanks so much for tuning in to JM Rewind. Plenty more coming up. Keep it here on NSN, the Nahum Siegel Network.